Good morning. I tried to think of some way to have us do the first part of the sermon and then the last part and then go back to the middle <laughs> and then back to the first part again, but I don't know how to do that. I admire that so much. I, I think in order to be a good song leader, you have to be part composer, you know. You've got to be able to kind of make up your own song as you go along. But. Wonderful singing. Great to see all of you here uh, this morning. Uh, many of you were here over the weekend for our vision workshop, and uh, we were blessed in many ways by that, and uh, now it's a blessing to be able to come together today and to uh, offer up our worship to the Lord and to spend some time uh, thinking about His Word. My high school and college years took place during the decade of the 60s, and one of the notable things that happened in those turbulent years was what was described as the sexual revolution. In case you're not familiar with that term, here's what it really meant. It just meant that people threw off all restraints. It meant that people decided that uh, people ought to do whatever they wanted to do sexually, uh, that you shouldn't have any inhibitions, you shouldn't have any rules, you shouldn't have any uh, filters, uh, you shouldn't have anything determining what you did sexually. You should just do whatever you wanted to uh, with no guidelines whatsoever and with the assumption that there would be no consequences whatsoever. Now, when we first started hearing about that, it was pretty shocking at first, but then along came the idea of moral relativism, and moral relativism got applied to everything, not just sexual behavior, but everything, that whatever you believe to be true is true, and whatever you think is right is right, and if something uh, that other people think is wrong, uh, it doesn't, you don't feel that way, then it's not wrong. And so everything was relative. You just determined your own morality uh, in effect. Now we're in a time when sexual identity itself is called into question. We're living in a day when even our government uh, is uh, telling us that we have no inherent sexual identity, but we are whatever we decide that we are, and that we are uh, free to do and identify as we choose, regardless of how we were born. You've heard in the news recently that for the first time ever, our government issued a passport that instead of having male or female, simply had an X for people who don't want to be labeled as one or the other. Uh, we have boys participating on girls' athletic teams, less frequently girls on boys' athletic teams. We have young people using one another's restrooms in the schools because some people, a very few, uh, do not know quite who they are. Uh, and as a result, their will is imposed upon everybody else. Teens are becoming sexually active at a much earlier age than previously. People are marrying later than they ever have. And as a result, you have a wider period of time there between which people become sexually active and when they marry. And so if they are sexually active, then that sex is going to be outside of marriage. Both kids and adults have unlimited access to porn through the Internet. 24-7, and there are literally millions of pornographic websites. In fact, thanks, uh, thanks to social media, the entire Internet has become a pornographic site because you can be part of it. You can post your own photos. You can be part of the show, uh, and you can expose yourself in any way that you choose to do, and a lot of people do so foolishly, not recognizing that that can later be a very costly mistake. 
At church, we try to teach our kids sexual abstinence, but then we send them off to schools where they're given condoms for free. And we look at all this and we might wonder, what in the world is the world coming to? What is the world coming to? And I think there's a simple answer to that question as we look in Scripture. The world is coming to what the world was a long time ago. The world, as far as sexual uh, beliefs and practices nowadays, is no different than it was in the days of Jesus and the apostles. We have come full circle. And we are back to the kind of immorality that was prevalent then. We may think that our current sexual confusion is a new thing, but it's far from it. It's all been here before, long before. The sexual confusion which Christians today live in the midst of is actually very similar to what was going on when the very first Christians began to follow Jesus. You see, it was an idolatrous world that they lived in. And idolatry and sexual immorality went hand in hand. They always do. And they did back then. There were the cults of Dionysus and Aphrodite and Osiris and Isis and, and others that uh, promoted sexual license. And in some of those cults, uh, sexual out, uh, acting out was actually a part of worship. And so they sanctified it and, and acted as if it were a, a positive thing and a holy thing. And naturally that attracted a lot of people. The Roman orator and politician Cicero said that young people should pursue sexual pleasures. Not that they should control themselves, but that they should pursue sexual pleasures and sort of get it out of their system so that then they could grow up and become serious about domestic life and their role in public life. So they should just kind of sow their wild oats and get it all done and then go on and live their lives. He said that was what a good citizen does. Prostitutes were everywhere. It wasn't considered wrong. Uh, or indecent to do business with them. In Greek and Roman society, anyone who owned slaves considered it his right to use them sexually. Plutarch, the second century Greek historian and philosopher, said that wives should not be angry if their husbands sought sexual pleasure with other women. And Demosthenes, the Greek statesman in order, expressed the prevailing opinion when he said this. He said, men need uh, wives to bear legitimate children and to be, as he called it, the faithful guardians of the household. But then they needed mistresses for sexual pleasure. But then they also needed concubines to serve as personal servants. And so the well-rounded man uh, had at least three different kinds of women uh, in his life. And sexual uh, morality was not an issue. Plus, many among the Greeks and Romans, including some of the emperors, believed that homosexual love was a higher form of love than that between a husband and wife, and what they really preferred was between a man and a boy. And so all of this is nothing new. What we are witnessing has all been here before. It was here a long time ago. It was here when Jesus was here. It was here when Paul wrote. It was here when the scriptures were written. It has been here for a long, long time. What we're seeing is simply a resurgence of the same old immorality that Christians had to be contending with in the beginning, and we have to contend with it now. Now, you may be wondering, why are we talking about this unpleasant subject? And I'll tell you why. We're talking about it because last Sunday we talked about abortion and about what Christians can do about abortion. 
And one of the action points that I tried to leave with you last Sunday was that we need to teach our children responsible sexuality. Because one of the primary reasons that many abortions occur, perhaps most, is simply because people behave irresponsibly sexually. And uh, abortions are the result. Men and women behave irresponsibly and thoughtlessly, and then they decide that the baby they have made together needs to pay the price, not them. All kinds of excuses are used to make uh, that just to try to justify that, but the bottom line is, uh, due to their sexual mistakes, their unborn babies pay with their lives. Besides, we need to talk about this because God has a lot to say about it. He has a lot to say in his word about responsible sexual behavior. And one of the things that he says is that we will be judged if we disregard his teachings. You heard Paul say that just a moment ago. Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who has placed his Holy Spirit within us. So whether a baby results from irresponsible sex or not, a serious wrong is committed. And God does not overlook that. Now that's where 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8 comes in. Because the Thessalonian Christians were living in exactly the same kind of sexual environment in which people live today. They were living in exactly the same kind of sexual environment in which you and I live. And yet Paul called them to practice sanctified sex. Sanctified sex. What does that mean? He called them to have sex only in ways that please their creator. He said, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Now, Paul had taught them about this before. But you remember from Acts 17 that when Paul was, was in Thessalonica, he didn't get to stay very long. He preached the gospel. There were numerous converts. But then he got run out of town by the local Jews Went on to a place called Berea, and things were going all right there until those same people showed up and got him run out of there. So he didn't really have very long to uh, kind of uh, drum into the minds of the Thessalonians the things that they needed to know because some of them were coming out of pagan backgrounds. They didn't know about sexual morality. They didn't know what the Old Testament said about it. They didn't know what it meant to, to uh, live a, a holy life. That was a new concept to them. And so Paul had to, to teach them. So he writes this letter uh, to do two things. One is to tell them about some things that he hadn't had a chance to tell them about when he was there because he didn't have time. But the other one is to remind them of some things that were so important that he didn't want them to forget it. And sanctified sex was one of those things. It was one of those things that was so important that he had to speak to them about it again. Did you know that Paul writes about this subject in seven out of his 13 letters? Does that give you an idea of how widespread sexual immorality was? He would write to Christians, he would write to churches, and he had to talk about this because of the environment in which they lived. So now he's got to write to the Thessalonians about it. And tell them, I told you about this before, and now I'm going to tell you about it again. And notice how he de describes Christian sexual behavior in verse 3. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Now, I would dare say most of us have not used the word sanctification this week. That's just not the way we normally speak. So what does that word mean? What is sanctification? Sanctification is the same thing as holiness. 
It means being set apart for God's service. It means being different from the world around us. It means having a special relationship with God. And so what Paul is reminding them of here is that they are not to be following the ways of the world, but they are to be following the will of God. Now, practicing sanctified sex means this. It means that Christians will always be out of step with the world where this subject is concerned. Make no mistake about that. We will always be out of step with the world where this subject is concerned. There will never be a time when our view of sexual morality is going to jive with that of the world around us. There may be times when it is closer, when the view of the world is closer to the Christian worldview, but then there are going to be those times when they're not even close at all. But we're always going to be out of step. And that's okay. That's what Paul is trying to get the Thessalonians and us to understand it's okay to be out of step with the world. In fact, it's not just okay, it's necessary. Because the world is not following God. The world doesn't care what God wants. The world does not care what a godly life looks like. The world does not care that Christ died to redeem us from ungodliness. And so we will always be out of step with the world. We will always be different always seeking to do something and be something that the world cares nothing about. But it doesn't matter how much of a minority we are. Sanctified sex is the will of God for those who follow Jesus. Now, before I go any further, let me make one thing clear. Absolutely clear, because we've been confused about this at times in the past. God is not anti-sex. He's not anti-sex. I kind of got that idea of growing up that maybe he was. And I don't know if anybody ever said that, but just sort of the implication was, you know, that, that wouldn't be anything God would ever approve. But God is not anti-sex. How could he be when he created it? He created it. Look at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. That God created man in his own image. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created us with sexual identity. He created us with sexual desires. The identity is not dirty, and the desires are not unclean or unholy. God has created these. Genesis 1 and verse 28, God told the man and the woman that he had made, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply. And, and we know how that happened. That happened through sexual reproduction. There was a time when people said, oh, the sexual reproduction only came about because of the fall. No, it didn't. Read it again. He gave that command before the fall. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to reproduce sexually before the fall into sin. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. New is simply a polite euphemism for sexual uh, relationship. And so they were just doing what God told them to do. They were carrying out the will of God for them. There was nothing wrong with what they were doing. 
And it's the same way throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament presents sex as God's gift to mankind, both for reproduction and for pleasure. And if you're not sure about that latter part, go read the Song of Solomon. Not right now. I see some of you over there scrolling through. Not right now. But if you're not sure about that, go read the Song of Solomon. And you will see that God has created us both for sexual reproduction and sexual pleasure. But here's the thing. Sex within marriage is an important way, Paul says, of preventing immorality. So sex is a way of preventing immorality. It's not immoral itself. It's a way of preventing it. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, Paul wrote, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's why he says don't refuse one another. So God isn't against sex. He's all for it. But here's the deal. He's only for it as long as it's between a husband and wife. And in scripture, a husband and wife is always a man and a woman. There are no exceptions to that. People have been trying to say that there are, that there should be, that somehow God just overlooked that, that whoever wrote the Bible was mixed up. No, it's always been that way. And it's intended to always be that way. It's always when the, the marital relationship. And so you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, and you find Paul saying uh, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You abstain from immorality. If it's outside of marriage, he says, you just don't do it. You just don't do it. You know, there's some things we just don't do. And this is one of them. We just don't do that. When Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 4, he has a particular Greek word that he uses for sexual immorality. It's one word. We translate it with two. But the one word is porneia. And it's an ugly word. And it describes an ugly act. But porneia is any kind of sexual activity other than that between a husband and wife. And again, go read Leviticus 18, and you'll see numerous examples of what porneia is. I don't need to describe it for you. If it's not a relationship between a husband and wife, it's porneia. It is what we now call pornography. That's where the word comes from. So Paul says abstain from that, and that means we have to exercise self-control. And you know that's one thing the world tells us we can't do. Have you noticed that? People tell us we can't be expected. We can't be expected to control ourselves sexually. We can't be expected to control ourselves in any number of ways. We're supposed to sanctify and, and acknowledge anything that people want to do is okay. They can't expect people to control themselves. No, God does. God expects us to control ourselves. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 4. Paul says, I'm writing you that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He's telling us to do that. Control your own body in holiness and honor. And you cannot be holy, you cannot be honorable without self-control. You just can't do it. He goes on, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
not like the world around you. You see, that was the challenge then, and that's the challenge now, is to practice sanctified sex regardless, regardless of the world's lack of standards because their standards are never going to be God's standards. They're never going to be. What the world says is okay is never going to be what God says is okay. What God calls us to is never going to match up with what the world is calling us to. So we've got to be sure that we're following God's standards, and that means self-control. He goes on in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, one form of porneia is adultery, and I think that's what Paul has in mind here when he talks about wronging his brother. In other words, you wrong the spouse of the person that you commit adultery with. Listen, sex outside of marriage always wrongs somebody. It always wrongs somebody. You will hear people tell you there's no harm in it. That is one of the devil's biggest lies. It's always harmful. It's always harmful to somebody. In the case of adultery, it is wronging that husband or wife who has every right to expect faithfulness and sexual purity from their spouse. Well, what about if people aren't married? Then they're free, right? And it's not harmful, right? They can just hook up, as the expression is, with whomever they choose, and nobody gets hurt. They can just be friends with benefits and all those other euphemisms that we've come up for just being animalistic. And it doesn't hurt anybody. Isn't that right? No, it isn't right. Someone else is harmed because you're just using that other person for your own gratification. You're just using that other person for your own gratification with no concern for what happens to them afterward, no regard for the cheapening of both their body and yours. It's just a sexual drive-by. It's just a sexual drive-by with no concern for who gets hurt. I want you to listen to what Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sins against his own body. I will tell you, I'm not really sure what all Paul meant by that. When he says every other sin is outside the body, because that somehow all sin is connected with our bodies, I think. I don't know exactly what he's getting at there. But it is pretty clear, he says, that there's something unique about sexual sin. It has a unique effect on us. The person who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, Paul says. Why? Partly because, as he goes on to say, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when you engage in unholy behavior, then you are sinning against your own body, and you're sinning against the Spirit, and you're sinning against the God who made you and who put his Spirit within you. And don't miss the latter part of 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not God, or not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me tell you something this morning, and please don't forget this. There are a lot of reasons to abstain from sexual immorality. Unwanted pregnancy is one. Sexually transmitted diseases is another. The pain of exposing your innermost self to somebody only to be rejected later for the newest flavor of the week is another. But the real reason for the Christian is this. It is because it is not holy. It's not God's will. If you could do it and not get an STD, if you could do it and be certain there would be no pregnancy, if you could do it and be certain there would be no emotional pain afterward, it would still be hurtful. It would still not be holy. It would still not be God's will for you. And Paul says God will judge you if you ignore that reality. It may not be easy, but it's what God has called you to if you want salvation in Jesus. It's what he's called us all to. Do you remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39? That's such an instructive story. Joseph, you remember, had been sold by his brothers into slavery, and they carried him down, these Midianite slavers, to Egypt, and they sold him to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was a powerful man. He was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. And so he became a servant in Potiphar's house. Now, the Bible says that Joseph was really good-looking. He was really good-looking. Some translations say he was handsome and good-looking. I don't know the difference. You know, when I look in the mirror, I think both, you know, <laughs> it's just handsome and good looking. It's all one. But anyway, he was good looking. He was good looking. And Mrs. Potiphar noticed that. Mrs. Potiphar noticed that he was really good looking. And so she tried to engage him sexually and he said no. And so she wouldn't stop. She just kept on day after day. The Bible says, can you imagine being a slave? And in somebody's house, and one of the people who owns you is, is trying to compel you sexually that way. And Joseph just kept saying no. He just kept refusing. And just think of all the excuses he could have come up with. He could have thought, hey, look, she's the boss, you know. And, and this is going to go hard with me if I don't. And so, and, and it's not my fault, right, because I'm a slave, and so... Yeah, I mean, he could have come up with all kinds of excuses, but he just wouldn't do it. And finally, finally, one day, she just wouldn't take no for an answer anymore. But before we talk about that, what were his reasons why he wouldn't do it? Look at Genesis 30, 39, uh, verses 18 and 19. Here's the reason. He says, my master has put me in charge of everything in this house. He has trusted me with everything except you. And I'm not going to violate that trust. And then he says, and how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do that? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Folks, that's the question we all have to ask ourselves, isn't it? When we're tempted to commit sexual immorality, how can I do this and sin against the God who loves me? How can I do that and sin against the God who gave his son to die for me? How can I do that and, and sin against the God who wants more than anything for me to live with him forever and eternity, but I have to be holy in order to do that? So what do we do? We do what Joseph did. That day when Mrs. Potiphar decided she's not taking no for an answer anymore, and she just grabbed him. She just grabbed him. She was going to try to force him. And, and he just slipped out of the garment that he had on and left her holding it and, and just ran. And you think, okay, what's the strategy here? That's it. Run. When you're faced with sexual temptation, run. Didn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians? Flee from sexual immorality? Isn't that what he told us to do? Joseph knew to do that long before Paul ever said it. Just run. And you think, well, didn't he think about the consequences? Of he thought about the consequences of not running. I had a man come to me one time, and he told me, there's a woman in my neighborhood, and she won't leave me alone. And I'm really tempted by her. I don't know what to do. I said, I know what you do. He said, what? I said, you move. Just move. He said, but I have to sell my house. I said, you're going to do that or lose your soul? Lose your marriage? Lose your reputation? Moving is the easy choice. Whatever it takes, get away. Get away. That's what we all need to do. Run from it. Make sure that all the sex that's ever in our lives is sanctified. That's the only, the only kind that God approves. That's the only kind that's for our good. That is the only kind that will not be judged. Let's stand together and sing.